Gradcast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students here at Western University. I'm your host, Mark Ambrosio. And I'm your co-host, Emily Hutchinson. Emily, have you heard of the website LiveLeak? I have not actually heard of that website. What What is it about? Well, I'm probably not the best person to answer, but I know someone who is. Joining us today, well, well, a friend of mine from the Faculty of Information Media Studies, why don't you feel free to introduce yourself? Hi, my name is Sierra LeBlanc, and I'm currently a master's student in FIMS with Mark. That's amazing. We're so happy to have you on GradCast today. Could you tell us, just to start off very generally, what you're doing here at Western? What's your program about? So right now I'm in the master's program that is one full year. So it's a little bit of coursework, a little bit of research, and then TA stuff as well. So in my final few weeks right now, I'm just working on finishing up my independent research project, which you'll get to hear lots about. Perfect. Um, So you're here at Western in the Faculty of Information Media Studies, commonly known as FIMS. Uh, Before you came to FIMS, uh, before you came, before you started your master's, what did you do before? <laughs> I actually was still in FIMS. Um, I did my undergrad uh, in media information and technoculture, which just from all the courses that I took and the professors that I spent a lot of time with made me realize I wanted to come back and do a master's. And I had a professor that I really liked, uh, Dr. Tim Blackmore, who's now my supervisor. And I just thought it was a good choice for me. Mm-hmm. And why don't you tell us more about that independent research project? What are you studying? So my IRP focuses on an uncensored video sharing site called LiveLeak. Um, And what exactly I'm studying has changed quite a lot over the past year. But I originally intended to look at the raw war footage that was uploaded to the site during the Iraq war. And I was kind of looking to analyze what kinds of footage was there, the kind of representations that were embedded in the footage, uh, how people in the comment section were talking about the footage, and if this kind of shaped their perceptions of the war itself. And then as I started to conduct my research, I realized that all of the footage was gone, which for me was obviously a huge problem. Um, But then I realized that it was a really interesting research problem as well, because Mm. I think it shaped a lot of people's perceptions of the war and gave them a different view of it. And for me, someone who was a baby during that war, (laughs) I wanted to look into it and I couldn't. I couldn't understand where these people were coming from, what they knew, what they were watching. And I think that it's a very relevant problem today. Mm-hmm. You mentioned that the war footage was gone. So tell us a little bit about the website. Like when when did it start and when did it stop functioning? Like I gather it's no longer live. Yeah. So uh, the website shut down in May 2021. Um, originally, it came from a different shock and gore site called Ogrish that started in 2001 and closed in 2006. And the reason that Ogrish closed was because they wanted to shift into something more respectable, Mm -hmm. I guess, to say the least. Um, So Ogrish was known for having really violent graphic footage from wars, just car accidents, that kind of stuff. But Mm. um, they wanted to rebrand themselves and decided to start LiveLeak on October 31st, 2006, and called it an uncensored news site that was an important site where people could get news that they couldn't get anywhere else. It was an unmediated platform, and a lot of people were celebrating it for being Uh, a more democratic form of communication, I guess. Mm -hmm. So that's the origin story. And then eventually, as you can assume, they still had a lot of controversies being uncensored throughout the years. So 15 years was a really long time for them to be up and running. But yeah, Mm -hmm. they closed in 2021 uh, and abruptly shut down. And then 
I guess, rebranded, but it's hard to call it a rebrand and kind of just shifted to an entirely new medium called Item Fix. And that's where LiveLeak, if you look it up now, it'll redirect you to Item Fix. But mm. Item Fix is a censored video sharing platform where it's more just people making memes and sharing right. lighthearted videos. Yeah, this is so interesting. I already have like five questions popping into my head, but we'll start at the beginning. Can you really break down for us what it means to be uncensored versus censored? Because I am I guess I'm thinking like censored would be like just a, a major news platform where you turn on the news and you see stuff there. Uh, but what, what makes something uncensored versus censored? Yeah, so it's really about how they justified the footage they had because what I learned doing my research is that LiveLeak actually was a little bit censored at the beginning, even though they said they were uncensored. So there were some content restrictions. They said you couldn't upload media that was quote unquote bad, mm -hmm. which they defined as hate speech, um, promoting terrorist activities and that sort of thing. But I would say they were rarely imposed considering they did host content that was exactly what they said they wouldn't. Um, so I think they were mostly uncensored despite having those rules in place but for the most part the way they would describe it is just celebrating grotesque war footage or violent mm -hmm. war footage in terms of that it brought people closer to the real and to the truth and that's why they continue to do what they did and kind of got away with it for so long i want to ask about that so you, you spoke about the real and the truth and earlier you mentioned uncensored unmediated and democratic so what distinguishes what was on LiveLeak from ABC Nightly News or NBC News? or <laughs> So what are they doing differently? So a lot of it has to do with uh, traditional mainstream notions of taste and decency. So a lot of violent war footage, for good reasons, are kept out of the mainstream media. But at the same time, that also means that a lot of uh, voices, a lot of perspectives, a lot of uh, suffering is kept out and people aren't aware of it at the same time. So that's kind of what Live Leaks said they would do. Just notions yeah, of taste yeah. and decency. Interesting. So I'm kind of thinking like the name like leak kind of <laughs> implies like it's a secret or something that they don't really want to get out but is getting out because of this other platform. Yeah. Is there a lot of agendas behind this? Like is this stuff that's that the government maybe or who knows what other parties don't want to come out? I think that's exactly what it was, especially because um, Lively came out in 2006 and the Iraq war started in 2003 and was known as the Internet War and was already kind of using social media platforms. And the reason why I was interested in the Iraq war was just because of the disinformation environment that it came out of. And there was a lot of uh, there were strict controls in the U.S. military. A lot of mainstream media was siding, I guess, with the U.S. military. Mm -hmm. um, and not reporting as critically as they should have, which actually, fun fact, the New York Times came out a few years later and said that a lot of the stuff they reported in Iraq wasn't verified and they didn't wow. do due, di due diligence, basically. Yeah. Um, so I think the whole leaking was in terms of, yeah, well, the embedded reporters aren't going to say this because they're not allowed to with the U.S. military, so it's on. Right, like it implies a secret. Yeah, it's yeah. a secret. It's yeah. the civilians who never get a voice posting the videos. I find, yeah, that unmediated aspect to be kind of interesting. Um, I guess I started to notice that, like, when the Arab Spring happened in 2011. Mm -hmm. And I was watching Twitter. And at that point, it was very easy to, to search Twitter on a browser without actually having an account. And seeing news of what was happening, but not seeing it reported on mainstream news and maybe seeing it reported the next day and as breaking news. But I thought, okay, that was breaking yesterday. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and so it's not always as breaking as, as it seems, or you may have somebody reporting on 
what is happening in Syria from London, England. And you think to yourself, okay, well, you're not, yes, it's on the scene that you're in Europe, but which is closer than New York, but you're not mm-hmm. quite on the scene. Mm-hmm. And so like the idea to actually see footage real is kind of interesting, although I'm sure there's there, there, there was a lot of disturbing content on there. Uh, did, didn't Lively coast the, um, the footage of Saddam Hussein's execution? Yeah, that was actually the only two months after they first launched. So that was the one of the main videos that kind of brought them up and put them on people's radars. Yeah. Yeah, that's well, that would be shocking, right? Now people are like, holy crap, like we can watch this this crazy stuff as it happens. Sometimes like I'll be on social media and it'll it'll like the photo or the video or whatever is grayed out and you have to choose like mm-hmm. disturbing content or something that you have to click to see it. Why do you or who do you think decides what should be grayed out and what shouldn't? Like because I'm thinking like automatically, like, OK, for kids, right? Mm-hmm. Like we don't want kids to see horrible, gory stuff. It's going to scare them and they're not ready for it. But what about adults? Who's deciding what we should and shouldn't see? Again, I think it just goes back to mainstream media controls and what the notions of taste and decency are. But they have changed a lot, I would say, in the past decade or two in terms of what was shown before and what is shown now. Um, But I think another really interesting or what I think is an interesting part of my research is that there isn't a lot of scholarship on this. So Mm. from everything that I found and quite a few references say the same thing. There's one major study in 2008 on Ogrish. And then after that, pretty much nothing talking about what kind of effects do user generated war footage have? What kind of psychological effects Mm -hmm. does it have? Why are people watching this? What are they getting out of it? What's the point? Is it necessary? And I think because there's so little scholarship on it, aside from maybe the four ones that everyone seems to refer to, it's a hard question to answer just because there's not a lot done on it, which to me is shocking. Yeah. 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 So you mentioned earlier that a lot of the footage that was on Live Leak is gone. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're in the you're wrapping up your research project. So obviously there's a bit of a research problem here. <laughs> can, you, can you tell us what you are doing and how you're navigating around this problem? Yeah. So I was originally intending to use the Wayback Machine, which was part of the Internet Archive, uh, to look at the footage. And I can find LiveLeak, you can find uh, the kind of subpage of a rack. It's all still there, which is why I was fooled into thinking it was all still there. But once you go to click on the actual videos, you get stopped because uh, the Adobe Flash doesn't play or you get stopped at a wall that says, are you 18? Mm -hmm. I guess that's one of their kind of ways to make sure it's not children viewing these, Mm -hmm. even though I'm sure. They could just click it anyway. Yeah, you can just say, (laughs) I agree. Um, But they had a lot of different ways to basically block it from getting access. So when I went on, it was all gone. I couldn't get access. And there are some stuff that are still archived on the Wayback Machine. So for example, like you were saying, the Saddam Hussein's execution, the video itself isn't there, but I was able to find comments on the video. Mm. Um, and another really controversial one was James Fo- James Foley's beheading. Um, so that video doesn't show the whole thing, but I actually was able to find that video and the comments. So there are some things that were there, but I wanted to look at Uh, the year 2007 and specifically February so all of that was gone Mm -hmm. and obviously when it's gone there's not much I can write about so now I kind of shifted my focus to talk about uh, what impact this has on my perceptions of the Iraq war and how I understand it and how I can't get at what some of these people had and it affects how we document Mm -hmm. and record and understand history and I think just because I'm a young person looking at this field who was a baby Mm -hmm. I have that kind of urgency to poke 
people and say, no, it's a problem because I can't understand it. And yeah. that means a lot of other people can't understand it. Even if you were alive and conscious when all of this was happening, a lot of people won't be, which is why it's important to pay attention today, especially given the use of social media and all the conflicts. Right. That kind of reminds me of like the the quote that you hear sometimes, like history is written by the winners, which yeah. is kind of a silly yeah. quote people throw around. But how does that influence? Because I guess like during the war, you don't know who the winner is. Mm-hmm. You're just showing the videos like there they are. But then when they disappear and the the record is maybe written by who wins, how much are we losing, do you think, from the, the whole process? Yeah, I think we're losing a lot, which is why I'm so into this issue Um, especially now I just noticed this a lot uh, with the Ukraine war and on TikTok a Mm -hmm. lot of people when you ask them like oh yeah I saw it on TikTok and for me it's kind of like okay where try and find it again yeah like has it been removed can you even find it it just randomly showed up on your for you page sure it shapes how you understand the Ukraine war but can you find it again can you prove it that's actually a really good point just last night my partner was like hey I saw this really funny video about a dog I'll show it to you. And he couldn't find it. It was mm-hmm. gone. Like, yeah. you, you type in dog video. Like, you're, there's no way you're going to be able to find it. It didn't it. help it's, narrow down the search? It didn't help no. narrow it down. Gosh. No. Yeah. So it, it's just crazy how, like, especially things like TikTok, 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 <laughs> you scroll past it and it's gone. Yeah. Well, I find that very interesting. Um, we have a tendency to assume that what's on the computer screen or on our digital phones is somehow more real than the printed page. Uh, but it's actually the exact opposite. And uh, I think we're having kind of a late, belated or ironic appreciation for physical records. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like I was just having this conversation with somebody who said, you know, by the way, don't throw your, DVD, your DVDs and your CDs. Hold on to them. Because <laughs> those are the records that will be around 10, 20, 30, 40 years from now. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've done, as part of my PhD in library and information science, I've done some research in archives. And archives are digitizing their physical collections, but most archives are holding on to their physical collections because the physical is the actual copy, Mm -hmm. and the digital copy may not last. And you tell it to people, like, what do you mean the the digital may not last? Of course it will, but we see it happening all the time. Websites are up one day, they're gone the next. Mm -hmm. Dog videos are up one day, they're Mm -hmm. gone the next. Um, And you're having this problem with LiveLeak Mm -hmm. in that it was up. There were these videos online, and now they're gone. So the digital record isn't necessarily uh, more more permanent. If anything, it's kind of fleeting. It's kind of ephemeral. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So the ephemerality of social media, and specifically of LiveLeak, I guess, is what I'm really trying to focus on. But it's interesting. You were talking about the real because, I, again, I think that's why it's so important that we archive this stuff because what one person thinks is the real reality isn't necessarily what is real. It's just what was framed as real and that was how they perceived it so not having any record of that is really crucial in trying to understand where they're coming from um but another thing that i was looking at was yeah this idea that yeah it's online internet is forever we'll always have it but clearly that's not true which is why i think the i don't remember their name but the person who created the wayback machine that was their intent but they've said like they don't have the bandwidth to save all these videos because even now like Every second, how many videos are being uploaded? It's yeah. impossible. So how do you work around archiving all of this stuff? It's funny if you look at the Western website on Lively, uh, sorry, on uh, mm. on um, Wayback Machine, um, and you go back, let's say 2005 or whatever, pick a year, and then you start looking into, let's say, faculty, and you go into department, let's say, psychology. As you start sinking down into certain levels, 
you're going to hit a certain wall mm -hmm. that it wasn't scanned. And so, yeah, even the Wayback Machine, which is a great resource. Yeah. Wait, limited. can you guys tell me more about this Wayback Machine? <laughs> I, I haven't heard of it before. It's a way of, like, going and finding websites that aren't up anymore? It's time travel. Yeah. It's pretty much all, it says, digital artifacts. So anything that was on the Internet, they've said that they've archived. And if they haven't, you can, I think, send a request and they'll archive something if you need it to be archived or if Whoa. you think it's important. So there is a lot on there. It's a great, great resource, but just in terms of how much they can actually save, obviously. Mm -hmm. And so has someone limits. has to like screenshot it in a way or like scan it into there? Um, I think it's part of their system. They right. have people who, um, I don't remember the exact word, but like kind of scroll through it. And right. it'll show you months with dates. It'll show you dates that have been where the website was scanned. Mm -hmm. And... Um, so it wasn't scanned every day. Right. And even when it was scanned, obviously the, first, the landing page will be scanned, the homepage. Yeah. And some of the more popular, bigger aspects of the website will be scanned. But let's say you want to, like your professor, your supervisor mm -hmm. is Tim Blackmore. You want to look at his faculty page uh, 10 years ago. <laughs> um, and you start scanning, like, well, here's a little take-home project. <laughs> you go down into the actual minutiae of the website. Odds are it hasn't been scanned at that level. Right. It's like hidden. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so for live leak videos, for example, everything's there, except you can't watch the video itself. And then when I went to look at the comments, it takes you right to item fix because mm. they haven't even gotten that far to save it. Right. That's crazy. Because people tell you, like when you're a teenager, don't post a stupid mm -hmm. picture of yourself on the internet because it'll be there forever. Yeah. But maybe not. Yeah. Or maybe it will be. <laughs> yeah. But that's actually a lot of the research now on ephemerality of social media focuses on that. Mm -hmm. Like our digital footprint as kids. And it just specifically looks at that aspect of posting more stuff about ourselves online and how maybe that disappears like on Snapchat. Yeah. But in terms of war, it hasn't really been talked about a lot. I want to ask you another aspect. So I know there's ephemerality. Another aspect of your research is spectatorship. Um, you mentioned uh, the Iraq War, mm -hmm. so there's two. And the Iraq yeah. War of 2003 uh, was seen as the first internet war. Yeah. So I'm, um, I'm old enough to remember the Persian Gulf War <laughs> yeah. of the 1990s. And I remember seeing, although I was a young fellow, but I remember seeing um, uh, footage of like reporters in Baghdad while Baghdad was being bombed. Mm -hmm. um, which is, you know, so that's pretty high threshold. But then you see, you know, BBC reporter reporting from Kiev talking about what's happening on the front line hundreds of miles away in Ukraine. You're like, okay, you're not on the front line. But anyways, getting back to the Persian Gulf War, they were calling that the first televised war. Um, obviously, there's footage of the Second World War, but it was like you could mm -hmm. be sitting in a restaurant and they'd have the TV on CNN and you're watching combat footage live. The 2003 war, the invasion of Iraq in 2003, was what you call it the first internet war. And there's a lot of interesting things happening here. Like the Second World War, people would go to movie theaters and before the movie, there'd be like a, maybe a news flash update inside, you know, inside the movie theater. Um, fast forward to the Vietnam War and there's that famous or saying, well, we didn't really, a Vietnamese general saying, you know, to the US, well, it's not so much that you lost so much of this it is that you had news coverage. And you lost because of news coverage. I wonder if you can talk about the idea of spectatorship. Yeah. So in terms of the Vietnam War, that's still a pretty contentious thing in uh, media studies, just because a lot of people um, say that that's what led to the failures in Vietnam. Um, but a lot of other papers have said, well, there was a lot of other reasons that the U.S. failed in Vietnam. But regardless, that was the reason that the U.S. military put strict restrictions on coverage of wars from that point forward. Um, in the first Persian Gulf War, they had... Uh, 
media pool teams that would follow um, the kind of military team around. Um, so social media in the second Persian Gulf War was a bit more intense. So the different kinds of spectatorship it gave rise to, that's actually one of the papers I was talking about before, the very few on internet spectatorship. And I find it really, really interesting because um, basically there's the typical pornographic metaphor where they say a lot of people watch uh, like gory footage is like a it's like gore porn or mm-hmm. war porn and it's for that entertainment aspect of it um, but what the scholar Tate was trying to get us away from was just saying well that's all that people get out of it it's not just entertainment some people see it as uh, a form of education and mm-hmm. they look at that video to mentally prepare themselves of what other war could look like some people are affected by it um, other people watch the footage to learn because it's a source of a different kind of reel and mm-hmm. so there's a bunch of different uh, modes of looking and kinds of spectatorship that occur because of the internet and uh, the things posted to it but in terms of uh, which gaze is most prevalent mm-hmm. it would probably be unfortunately the amoral gaze that looks right. at it yeah. for more entertainment purposes not everyone's doing their master master's thesis <laughs> on it yeah, <laughs> some exactly. people just want to watch it actually I want to ask a question about comments and so that's something really interesting that people can watch this video but then say something about it and then other people can read what they thought of mm-hmm. that and that's something that I don't think you really get on more of like the mainstream news footage like you can't comment on CNN <laughs> yeah right how do you think that influences the whole thing of it like getting out there and influencing perceptions well I think that was live Leak's original intent that because they allowed so much participation that people could say whatever they want and it would lead to a better conversation about the war but mm. as I'm sure people who know of live Leak will tell you it was an extremely toxic community um, so that commenting didn't actually always lead to anything productive at the slightest. So, yeah. for example, on the uh, execution video of Hussein, horrible comments. And mm-hmm. those are still archived on the Wayback Machine. Um, so in that sense, they don't really do all that much. Yeah. Um, and again, Live Leaks restrictions did very little to uh, kind of monitor discrimination of any kind on the site. And a lot of people say that is another reason that led to its downfall yeah like if you're gonna find trolls anywhere they're gonna be in the comments of a really gory video yeah yeah I find the whole idea of spectatorship to be really interesting (laughs) so not to uh not to over uh um overanalyze it but it kind of uh provokes the question like what is real because is our memory of what happened Mm -hmm. real or like what is real because we are seeing what's provided to us on the news, but someone else may be there and seeing something totally different. Someone on the other side of the conflict will be watching an, a very different news source and seeing, you know, and seeing a very different coverage. So it's kind of like, okay, when we think of the war, we're thinking, to a certain extent, it's what's happening on our phones as we scroll, and uh, and then what what is what's happening on our phones is fundamentally altered by a website like LiveLeak. Mm-hmm. I wonder if you can maybe unpack that a little bit. Yeah, for sure. So I think something I'm trying to kind of hint at throughout my entire research is this understanding of real. Real is just subjective. Mm-hmm. What is real to one person is not real to somebody else. And if we're talking again, about TikTok, again, we can see like, oh, yeah, this dog video was on my TikTok and I saw a dog stand. So mm-hmm. dogs must be able to stand. But that's coming through on your feed. Somebody 
behind the TikTok scenes is curating that on your feed. So yeah. whatever your understanding of real or truth is, is still in some way mediated and curated, regardless of whether or not the footage was edited yeah. to some degree. So yeah. I think what I'm trying to poke at the whole time is this issue of the real and truth is important, but it's not the most important because when it's gone, you have no way of justifying what you thought was real mm-hmm. and it everything kind of falls apart from there. Yeah. And like the four you pages are, are four you like it's literally just (laughs) what you're seeing and so and this sometimes happens to me like I'll be like oh people are really into crochet right now like people (laughs) all over like so many people are crocheting and then others are like I've never seen a crochet video on my for you page or on my Pinterest and I'm like really like I feel like everyone's doing it I'm missing out on something (laughs) I know right you don't like this is news to me like I saw on my social media that everyone was doing this and so I bet it's like that's such a tiny thing like it doesn't really matter if I think people are crocheting but that would Mm -hmm. matter so much if you're looking at a war and and you think that this is what everyone's seeing but really it's just you like you're kind of in a bubble yeah it seems exactly and I've even seen TikTok videos of people being like wow I thought everyone had the exact same political views as right. me and I was shocked when this political leader yeah. came into power yeah and then they were like oh no it's just my feed mm-hmm. a lot of people have different views yeah and a lot of people live in a very sheltered um like me and my friends feel this. Yeah. And uh, uh, sometimes there's been a, a, you know, 2016 an upset and suddenly, you know, huge classes of the population are surprised. Oh, I didn't know. I thought they were only weirdos. But um, <laughs> but um, um, speaking of, subject- of the subjective experience, Sierra, I'm, I'm kind of interested in, you mentioned that you did your undergraduate in media information technoculture, commonly known in here as MIT. Um, and then you had a couple courses with Tim Blackmore. Mm-hmm. What courses did you have with him? So I took three and then two in my undergrad. So in total, I've done five with my supervisor because he's awesome. Um, but in undergrad, I took a course called Killer Culture, uh, which is kind of what got me into these, this realm of studies. Uh, I took another one called War for War, which was talking about how war is mediated. And then uh, the third course I took with him was called Rebel Knowledge, which I would highly recommend to anyone in MIT because I think there's a lot of doom and gloom in what we study in the mainstream media and in terms of looking at capitalist society and then having Mm -hmm. to go out and work in it. Mm -hmm. It can be a really hard thing to transition into. And the course Rebel Knowledge actually situates you in those problems and gives you lessons and tools to navigate that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, we've heard a lot about what you are doing now, but you're almost finished. You just have a few weeks. Yeah. What's next? Uh, a break. A break. <laughs> yeah, I think just doing undergrad and master's back to back has been a lot. Yeah. Um, so I'm really looking forward to just enjoying my August. Mm-hmm. I have to move out of London, sadly. Um, and then just slowly taking steps to get my energy levels back, mm-hmm. prioritize mental health, and then I think I'll go in the industry for a little bit but I would love to do a PhD on this because I think uh my interests are far from being scratched yeah yeah Yeah. you seem to like have so much like bubbling with ideas and and interesting things that's awesome to hear uh yeah well speaking of the future we want to know what will happen and any possible future research (laughs) that you do Sierra um, so we're just about out of time, and thank you so much for coming, Sierra. But yeah. speaking about what you may be doing with your research, is there a website that people can go to to follow and see what you're doing? Yeah, so uh, people can look at my LinkedIn, which is Sierra LeBlanc. 
Um, I'm sure my name will be in it will, the yeah, caption. Yeah, we'll put it in the so, description yeah. of the show notes. Yeah, and yeah. I'll keep you updated on where I go in the future. And hopefully we won't have to find it on Wayfinder or whatever. <laughs> <Is that> what <laughs> the Wayback way way back back machine. machine. <laughs> yeah, that it will way be. Way back. It'll be, it'll be live on there. Exactly. That's great. Yes. Well, thank you so much for coming on the thank show. Thank you so much for having me. I really mm-hmm. had thank fun. You. I'll take us out. This has been GradCast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at Western University. I've been your host, Emily Hutchinson. My co-host was Mark Ambrosio, and we've been speaking with Sierra LeBlanc. And this episode was also produced by me, Emily Hutchinson. If you'd like to be involved with the show or get in contact with us, you can email us at gradcast.sogs.ca. Follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at Gradcast Radio. To listen to us, we're on Radio Western 94.9 FM, and you can find all of our episodes wherever you find your podcasts. Thank you for listening, and enjoy the rest of your day. Mm-hmm.